Hey, we're in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. Jesus is coming in judgment. If you would stand for reading of God's word, we honor God by standing when we read his word. Now, I also want you to remember this. When I say Babylon, you think that system that has been in existence since the fall of man was formalized at the Tower of Babel and exists all through time. It's religious, it's governmental, and it's anti-God. Okay, that is what we think of. That is what we think of. Now, there was, I had a question this morning. I'll answer that question right now. Is Babylon a physical place? That's debatable. Some people think it's spiritual. Some people think it's Rome. Some people thought it was even Jerusalem. But I think it's actually a city that is built because the nations come from the north and destroy the city. So that kind of gives me a tip off, and that's why I go in that direction. But hey, whatever it is, I'm hopefully not going to find out. <laughs> We're not here for that. <laughs> Otherwise, we've messed up on the pre-trib rapture thing. So, okay. So verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we thank you for this time to study the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. We thank you that we see here Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment. And Jesus is coming to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And for his people, this is great because evil will be dealt with with finality. There will be no more lawlessness and King Jesus will reign. And we are grateful for that, Lord. Open our eyes to the truth of your word today. Holy Spirit, teach each one of us something that you want us to know out of this teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So please be seated. Now, last week we saw the Babylonian system, the governmental system was destroyed. And do you remember what the people looked like? Remember, there was the kings, there was the merchants, there was the shipmasters. And I had that picture of that guy floating on the dollar bill with the fire burning in the horizon. And everything had changed in a day for those people that love the Babylonian system. But it's quite different in heaven. All of heaven breaks out in praise and it's just praising God for finally this evil system is going to be dealt with. Remember, Jesus is coming to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. There will be no more evil kingdoms. Now we have a slide here that's going to talk about, we've seen this before, very familiar when we went through our Daniel study, but all of these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, a divided Roman Empire, East and West divisions exist today. There are Eastern nations and there are Western nations. This is on the horizon, the ten-nation confederation that will start out autonomous but will be taken over by Antichrist and he will rule these ten nations. All of these kingdoms are built on one another. Persia has a little bit of Babylon. Greece has a little bit of Babylon and, per Babylon and Persia and so on. And this kingdom is evil. When Jesus comes back as the rock in Daniel chapter 2, it says a stone smote the image upon his feet and became a mountain or a kingdom and filled the whole earth 
The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And if you ever said hip, hip, hooray, this would be time to say it. Hip, hip, hooray. Yes, we're glad for that. So heaven heaven breaks out in worship. And remember, the worship is loud and the worship is powerful and the worship is strong. And the worship is like a, a mighty waterfall. And I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls and you're standing there and it's roaring and you can't hear anything. Well, it's the same thing that happens at a football stadium when someone wins the championship. And look at these. Could they be Ohio State people or could they be? They might be Alabama, okay? But they're definitely not Michigan. That's all I can, much to my sadness. But that's loud and frenzied at the stadium. And then it gets even more exuberant when we talk about the marriage supper or the marriage of the Lamb that happens in Revelation 19.7. And remember, we are waiting for our bridegroom to come for us. And what is our duty? We are to watch. We are to be faithful. We are to be ready for, the, for Jesus to come back and take us to heaven. And guess what? When he comes back, and you're going to see in a few minutes when we get to the white horse, we'll be riding on white horses with him, and we'll have a bird's eye view of what's going on. We'll have a bird's eye view of Satan being thrown into the pit. We'll have a bird's eye view of the false prophet and the Antichrist being thrown into the lake of fire. And we'll have a bird's eye view of the earth dwellers being dealt with just by the word of God. Now, this return of Jesus will be violent. It will be gruesome. And Jesus will finally deal and crush with Babylon's evil. Think about this. Most people see Jesus as the Sunday school Jesus, don't they? Meek, mild, almost soft, milk toasty, uh, cuddly, cuddly like a little lamb, cuddly. That's how they see Jesus. Someone that you can boss around, someone that you can manipulate. That would be a wrong view of Jesus. Okay, just plant that in your mind. That's a wrong view. So who is Jesus really? Jesus is God, okay? He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is our master. He is our redeemer. He is the savior of the world. He is wonderful. He is counselor. He is the bright morning star. You've heard this before. The lily of the valley. What does it go? Provider and friend. He was yesterday. He'll be tomorrow, beginning and end. He is Jesus, and he is mankind's only hope. That's the truth. Now, how does the world see Jesus? Well, the world sees Jesus very differently. Most of people know that he's a good guy, that he's a good guy, a prophet, a great teacher, a wise sage. But they don't see him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. They don't see him as a conquering king. They don't see him as their only hope. It was the same in Jesus' time. And if you put up this next one, This is Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, it's a very northern part of Israel. You go on your trip there, they'll drop you off here with all the other tourists, and they'll tell you this is where the pan god was worshipped. These were demons were worshipped. And in this place, Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do men say that I am? And they responded, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus points at the group and says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter pops up with the answer and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. That is the right view of Jesus. Now, a fact is this. We must know this about Jesus. He is loving. He is kind. He is long-suffering. He is gentle. Look how he's dealt with each one of us. He is gentle. But it's also important to see Jesus as this, the conquering king, a warrior, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can either take Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, or you will face the conquering king, the judge of all the earth. The choice is yours. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is true. Now, thinking about the real Jesus, thinking about where we are in the book of Revelation, Jesus is coming back. Remember, the armies are staged in Megiddo. We've already had a teaching on this, the second coming of Christ. This is kind of a redo second, second uh, act for this. The armies are staged in Megiddo, Armageddon, all the armies of the world. And they're staged there for a purpose to fight Jesus' return and to kill every Jew possible. While in Megiddo, Antichrist hears that Babylon has been destroyed. The nations from the north have come down and destroyed Babylon. We've been through this several times, okay? Instead of going back and defending his city, what does he do? He attacks Jerusalem. In attacking Jerusalem, the Jews give a stout defense of the city. And they kill a lot of the, a lot of the people that are trying to take over the city, Antichrist army. But they are eventually defeated. And what does Antichrist do next? He goes down to Basra, where the, where the remnant are hidden. And they, remember, when the abomination of desolation comes, the Jews that are believing in Yahweh, the Jews that have believed in the Old Testament prophet Daniel knows about the abomination of desolation. The Jews that have may even heard Jesus teach about the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24, they flee to Basra. They flee to Petra. They flee to their, their safe place. And we have a couple pictures here of this. When you go on a tour to Basra or Petra, you get to come here and this is where you'll go. Notice this is a huge rock safety place. Next one. Notice that there's one way into this thing, this entrance. So this is a very good defense position. Next slide. And again, one way in. This is oftentimes called the, Basra is known as the sheepfold. Or you can say this is the cleft of the rock, hidden safe in the cleft of the rocks. Keep that thought in mind. Think about the cleft of the rock. Now, there are times when your life is going really fast, and it's not so pleasant. There's stuff that is happening in your world, and you want to jump off the merry-go-round and take a pause. I mean, most people have experienced this. If you're honest, you're going to go, yes, I've experienced that, yes. You look for your safe place. Where is the safest place that you can be? It's in the cleft of the rock. It's in the palms of our God. When we face our trials and troubles, may it be said of us, we were found in the cleft of the rock. We weren't found in the corner biting our nails down to the quick. We weren't found in a corner trembling. We were safe in the cleft of the rock, safe in our God. Now, we open up our teaching in verses 11 through 13. Jesus is coming in judgment. He comes as a mighty warrior. It's going to be described here. Now I saw heaven opened. John just had the most amazing experience here, didn't he? 
he sees heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is a conquering king horse. And remember, he came, Jesus came the first time. How did he come on the colt? A servant's animal, but now it's a conquering animal. He who sat on it was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is King Jesus. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees everything, and he's powerful. In his head were many crowns, many diadems, many king's crowns. He's king of kings. And he had a name written new one, no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is the blood of his enemies. And his name is called the Word of God. Again, John was familiar with the earthly Jesus. He was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He saw all the miracles. He was at the big spots when Jesus did big things. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was in Gethsemane. He was in the spots where only the inner circle would go. And he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and he falls down at his feet as dead. And he sees Jesus again here, and it's a different Jesus than he's used to. John saw heaven open. The first thing he sees is a white horse that is, is being uh, put before us here. And Jesus is seen on this white horse as a victor extraordinaire. Victor extraordinaire, returning on a white horse. But guess what? Who else gets to ride on the white horse? We do. It's not like going to the store and riding on the pony. You know, <laughs> That is not what it's going to be. It's going to be this great horse, and you're on it, and it listens to you, and you're not afraid of the horse, and it goes wherever you want, through space and all, and you're coming back with Jesus. I mean, that's an amazing picture to me. John MacArthur says this about Jesus coming on a white horse. He says, John's vision portrays him as the conqueror on his war horse, coming to destroy the wicked, to overthrow Antichrist, to defeat Satan and take control of the earth, and that's another hip, hip, hooray. Yes, we're glad of that. In, righteous, in righteousness, he'll judge and make war in verse 11. God will deal with evil. It will not go on forever and ever. And there's a great relief that we have with that. When Jesus returns, he comes in power, horse, strength, eyes of fire. This is not a peace treaty opportunity. I'm coming to bring priests peace to the earth. This is not what this is coming to take over. This is not a makeup session. Look at the earth dwellers have had the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. All of them were off awful. All of them were pointing them towards who the true God is. All of them were encouraging the earth dwellers to turn and live and repent. And they rejected and they rejected and they rejected. And I don't know if you remember this in our teaching a few weeks ago, months ago, uh, with the seal judgments. But remember the, the fifth seal, we have these scorpions, these, these, these things that are released from the pit, these locusts who sting like scorpions. And they only sting those without, that, that, don't have the, that aren't protected by God, that have the seal of God. And then the next one was a sixth trumpet, and you have this demonic army, 200 million man army, that comes out and destroys another third of the earth, kills them. And this is the response of the earth dwellers. You would think they would wake up and go, oh, I'm worshiping the wrong guy here. I think I need to switch teams, but oh no. This is what they say. But the rest of mankind who are not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. 
and they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries. Remember, that's pharmakia, drugs, sexual immorality, or their thefts. Look at, they had ample opportunity to know who Jesus is and said, no, I'll stick with the dark side. And these are the ones that are going to be judged. His eyes were like a flame of fire in verse 12, meaning Jesus sees everything. There's no flim flam with Jesus. There's no saying, oh, I didn't know that, or I'm pretending, or, or I, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't really mean that. Oh, no, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus sees all. Jesus knows all. Then and now, Jesus sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Nothing is hidden from God's sight. All things are uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. There is no fooling God. There's no fooling Jesus. Hear this loud and clear. Our Lord sees every action, everything. Our Lord knows every motive. Nothing is hidden from him. Our Lord, interesting, know, interestingly, knows the inner man. We don't, I don't know the inner man here. I don't know. I mean, I know my wife as well as I can know anybody in this world. But I don't know her inner deepest thoughts. And neither does she me. And no, none of us do. None of us do. But God does. He knows our inner thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him. And you know what's amazing to me? I've been born again of the Spirit as well as you have, most of you. And you have been changed by God and you've been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're still pitiful people. And Jesus sees me. Thankfully, I'm seen through the blood of Christ and I look clean even though I'm not quite all that great. Okay? That's an amazing thing to me. And the other thing that's astounding to me is this. Jesus calls me his friend. In John 15, 15, speaking to his disciples, and this is just literally hours before the cross, okay? I have called you friends. I have called you friends. And I think we can extrapolate from that anyone that is following him as a disciple, as a follower of the rabbi, of the teacher, who wants to emulate and be like the teacher, he's saying that to you too today. He wants to be your friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All I can say is thank you, Jesus, for saving me. His name, no other name can save us from Babylon, from this world system that is in, in place that we are living in. A name written that no one knew except himself. His name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. John 1, verse 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. That's Jesus. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Did not comprehend it. That word Logos means this, to speak intelligence, the ultimate reason which controls all things. Jesus has every datum of knowledge and information that ever existed. He is the complete intelligent, the, the massive wisdom of God, all wrapped up in the logos of God. And what happened to the word in John 1.14? The word became flesh, became one of us. Can you imagine someone that great becoming one of us? That's an astounding thing. And he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. 
And this Jesus, when he comes back, his robe is dipped in blood. And we will return with him as spectators. And we will see this. He does all the fighting. He does all the fighting. Isaiah 63, verse 2 and 3. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. Jesus does all the fighting. So if you're on a white horse and you're following Jesus, and you try to get a spear and get involved in this thing, you're doing the wrong thing, okay? Do not get involved. Just watch him do it. I have trodden the winepress alone from the peoples. No one was with me. He's speaking of the Jewish people. They have all abandoned him. For I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. Jesus describes the carnage in Revelation 14, 19 through 20 where he talks about the wine press was trampled down. The blood was up to the horse's bridles. And I, we have a picture here of Basra. This battle takes place. Now, Antichrist here is in Megiddo. He goes down to Jerusalem. He kills all the Jews, or he takes captive and kills as many as he can in the city. And from here, he goes down to Basra. They know he's coming and they plead for Messiah to return. Jesus comes back, and the war starts here, and that war goes for 180 miles or so, 183 miles to Jerusalem, where he stands on the Mount of Olives as a victor. All the way there, Antichrist armies are defeated, and his, the blood is splattered all over the place. It is bloody, it is gory, it is vengeful. This is, folks, the wrath of God. This is real. This is real. Again, we have a hard time viewing Jesus in this light. God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And I want to take a little segue here. He's, the way he does that is through his attributes. Do you ever wonder who God is and what he's like? Well, there's attributes that are given in Scripture that tell us what he's like. A.W. Tozer says this in his Knowledge of the Holy. Our idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. How often do people worship the creation rather than the creator? It happens all the time. We see all kinds of idols made to the creation and not worshiping the creator. So what is a divine attribute? It's defined this way. Whatever may be correctly ascribed to God. That is true about God. Now, here's a list. This isn't in your notes, okay? So you're going to have to listen to me or write them down yourself or just get a book on the attributes of God because I'm only going to give you a few as an example. First of all, I want you to get a view of who God is and who humanity is because today we have humanity fighting against God, saying we don't need you, God. We don't want you, God. We want God kicked out of our country, kicked out of our schools, kicked out of everything. Stay in your corner, stay in your churches, and don't say anything about God. And We can't do that because we have the Great Commission. So I want you to know who God is, and he is not the same as people. God is self-existent. That means he has no origin. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is called the eternal I am in Scripture. He is self-sufficient. What does that mean? He has no needs. He has no wants. We were not created because God was lonely. Oh, I'm so lonely. I have to have some puppy dogs to pet down here on earth. And all you humans I'm going to make. No, that is not why he made you. 
He made you because he loves you. It's an extension of his love. God is eternal. Now, hear this loud and clear. He's in the everlasting now. What does that mean? God dwells in eternity, but all time dwells in God. God has already lived all of our tomorrows, and he has lived all of our yesterdays. For him, in him, everything that will happen has already happened. It is startling. This is A.W. Tozer. What a great quote. What a great way to look at this. God is immutable. He's unchangeable. He never differs from himself. And then he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. There's not one datum of information that he does not possess. He knows every thought, everything from beginning to end. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful to do whatever he wants. He's omnipresent. That means he's wherever you go, God is. There's no place that you can go that God is not. The farthest universe. You go into the operating room, you feel like you're alone, God is there with you. You feel like you're alone in your job, God is there with you. David said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hands will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Our God is all over. There's no place that you can go that he is not. Take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. He is faithful. He is good. He is justice. He is mercy. He is grace. He is love. He is holiness. God is sovereign. He runs the show. Not us. God runs it. And listen to this. And please focus on this for just a second. God is transcendent. And again, this takes off of his, of his eternality. He's outside of his creation. He's outside of time. Space, matter. God is in the eternal now. God does not see through the corridors of time. Oftentimes we picture God as, with, with, with predestination as seeing through the corridors of time. That is a false view. God inhabits all of time, from the beginning of time to the end. That is why we are already seated in the heavenlies, according to God, because that's how he sees us as completing our mission here on earth in Ephesians chapter 2. That's why he can write in Revelation that these things have already happened because in his eyes, they have already happened. We are, not in, t- we are in time. All time is, he, he encapsulates all time, but he is not, not bound by time. He's in the whole timeline from beginning to end. That's an amazing concept. Guess what? Satan is a created being. Satan is in the timeline. Who thinks, who do, who do you think is the smartest? It is not Satan, is it? It is God who knows the beginning from the end. Look, at God is not just a big brother. That's what I'm trying to get across here. God is not just a little bit bigger than us and a little bit smarter than us. He's just not like, like some, some great physicist in the sky Oh no, oh no, he is God. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's a big statement. As high as the heavens are above the earth, he's giving you a little idea who you are and who he is. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Don't ever think you're so smart that you're going to outthink God. God's love, his goodness and kindness are part of who he is. But his justice, his holiness, and his wrath are every, part, every bit a part of who he is. Now, what has happened in our country? What has happened to the church in our country? We have grown, grown distant from God. We've drifted from God. 
Many have sprinted from God, are in a full-fledged sprint away from God, and have rejected the true God, and have taken in the make-believe God, the God that they have made up in their minds. Not the biblical God, the God they've made up in their minds. The church, folks, is blending. When you hear the church becoming woke, when you hear the church buying into social justice, you have a problem because the world has invaded the church. The church is to influence the world, not the world influence the church. They have a weak view of God. They're worshiping the God of their imaginations. And I want to read this to you so I get this exactly right. This is where we are today. The world has embraced the make-believe God, and this God has invaded the make-believe church. That is what has happened. Verse 14 through 16, the armies of heaven follow Jesus. And guess what? That's you. That's us. We get to come back with them. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. That sounds like us, doesn't it? White and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Watch the pronouns. And that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress and fierces the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is all about Jesus. We come watching. We are watching the World Series. We have box seats for the first time in our lives. We're right on the third baseline, right behind the plate, and I can see Nolan Ryan's curveball. I can see this fastball coming in. I'm right there watching this. Bird's eye view. The armies of heaven, folks, there are two. There are two armies of heaven, angels and the church. In Matthew 16, 27, it says the angels, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall render every man according to his deeds. And we know the church is, is arrayed in fine linen, as it was described here in Revelation 9, 8. And we also know in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, is that you will appear with him. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The armies of heaven will come, and we're part of it. Now, what weapon does Jesus use? Does he use a super-duper, Adam, Megam, Bamum, whatever it is, to get those earth dwellers? No, what he uses is a sharp sword. A sharp sword, which we know is he speaks it. He speaks it. Those who were slain meet their doom because they're judged by God's righteous word. Remember Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing of soul and spirits, joints and matter. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The earth dwellers have consistently violated the precepts of God. And Jesus slays his enemies with his lips. Isaiah 11.4 puts it this way, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Isaiah 49.2, His mouth is like a sharp sword. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, When Antichrist is destroyed, he is consumed with the breath, the breath of the Lord's mouth. Who's all-powerful? God's all-powerful. Our Lord Jesus is all-powerful. This isn't a competition between who's the strongest. Why, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how high he is above Satan and the demonic realm. There's nothing even close. Jesus will rule, folks, with a rod of iron. 
Is this, will, will this be a tyrannical rule? Will he be a despot like all the other kingdoms? Oh, no. No, he's King Jesus. He's righteous. And guess what? There's no competitors. There's no more Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. No more of this world kingdom stuff. People jockeying for position. It'll finally be justice and righteousness on earth. And the more we live in a lawless society, the more we desire to see law in order. And guess what? Jesus is coming to rule, but you will rule also. You are the bride of Christ. The church inherits what Jesus has. We inherit what he has. We will co-reign with him. And there's an interesting concept here that I want you to get. In Revelation 3.21, it talks about overcomers. And in several places in Scripture, it talks about overcomers. And I want you to get a picture of this. There are those who are saved by the blood of Christ, and they'll enter the kingdom of God with nothing to show for it. Their works will be wood, hay, and stubble. The overcomers are those gold, silver, and precious stones. The things they have done for Christ after salvation will merit rewards. These are overcomers. So Revelation 3.21, overcoming is a theme. To him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. That's reigning. That's king stuff. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne in Revelation 5.10, it says, he has made us kings and priests to our God. Folks, we're going to be reigning. Overcomers is the word nikeo. And it means victor and it means conqueror. When you... When, when do you conquer? When are you a conqueror? When are you an overcomer? When are you a victor? Every time you obey God and say no to your fleshly desires, no to the world's desires, no to the devil's prompting in your life. Remember, that's the triunity that you fight against, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you say no to that, every single time you do that, just picture this, you're poking Satan in the eye. Boop, I gotcha. Boop, I gotcha. Think about that. You poke him in the eye. Clay Jones in his book says this about, in his book, Why Does God Allow Evil? Gives us a view of what conquering looks like. And his whole thing is overcoming evil and the tragedies that happen in life and the unfairness that happens in life and how to deal with those things. He says this, We conquer when we believe that obeying God makes it possible for us to thwart the most evil and powerful foes any human ever faced, even death, even if we're killed. Remember how we, we were victors in, in the book of Revelation. They, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And he gives some examples here. Now you could come up with your own examples, but this is what he says. When a man tells his co-workers that he can't see a movie because it's immoral, and he takes criticism for it, and he's belittled for it, and he's called a prude, he conquers. He conquers. When a couple faithfully commits their, faithfully has their wedding vows committed to, or their commitment to the church, or whatever else it is, you conquer. When parents refuse the, their teenage child something risque, and all the other parents, you ever hear that? All the other parents are letting them do this. I should be able to, don't buy that one. All the other parents are wondering what you're doing, why you're letting them get away with it. When you, when you stop them from doing something risque and all the other parents are allowing it, you conquer. When a woman remains kind 
to an unkind husband, year after year after year, she conquers. When a man cares for his invalid wife or a, for a wife for a husband and thanks God, he or she conquers. When you're bored and would love to watch TV because you don't have anything to do and all that's on the tube is garbage and you don't watch it, you conquer. You conquer. And when you get cancer, and he's saying this because he got cancer, he had bone cancer. And when you get cancer but remain faithful and thankful, you conquer even if the cancer kills you. These require the endurance that results from faith, the conviction of things unseen. When things go wrong, he finishes with this, and we continue to honor God, we conquer. Let me say that again. When things go wrong, now that happens just about every day, doesn't it? When things go wrong every day in my life, and I I stay close to God, we conquer. We conquer. We don't overcome, we don't conquer when we resort to our own stuff. Gossip, lies, grumbling, sexual fantasies, paybacks, drugs, anything that you can think of. Disobedience to God. We do not conquer. Enduring, overcoming, conquering, and finally reigning happens when we honor God through whatever hardships come our way. Good word from Clay Jones. Good word. Now, let me suggest this to you. Conquerors will reign with Jesus in his kingdom. Overcoming conquerors are those who work for God, let me say it again, after salvation. Now, people won't recognize you're conquering. You realize that. They could care less that you're a conqueror in the kingdom of God. But God cares. God sees your victories. God sees every time when you're acting contrary to the flesh, contrary to the world, and standing up for him. He sees it. And folks, it's worth it to serve our God because you'll be rewarded later and greater. Later and greater. Be a conqueror now and reign with him forever. Then we have the wine press of the fierceness of his wrath, just talking about this thing as a fait complete, it is done. And then he comes back on his robe and on his thigh and name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we will know something for eternity. It's all about Jesus. There's not one thing that we brought to this table, folks. It is all about him. Because he conquers, we can conquer. Because he has given us his spirit to be overcomers. We will know for eternity it's all about Jesus. We follow him on white horses. Again, the pronouns. Out of his, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. He should strike the nation. He himself will rule. He himself treads the winepress. He has on his robe a name written. This is not about us. This is all about him. King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, Jesus made the statement that he did not come to serve but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jason said that today. We have come to serve our king. And when we do, we are overcomers. Closing thoughts. Revelation 6 through 19 is the, is the tribulation period. We're getting to the end of the book, folks. We're going to actually finish it sometime this year. We will. We're looking, and the, and the tribulation period is the worst time in the history of the world. Jesus said in the Matthew 24, 21, he said, these times will be so, so awful, lest these days be cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. 
Hear this loud and clear. The only way to escape God's judgment is to be part of the body of Messiah. That is it. To be born again of the Spirit. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus when Nicodemus tried to smooth him? I know you're a great teacher come from God. And he didn't even address it. He just like blesses that off. He says, you must be born again, Nicodemus. In John 3, 7, you must be born again. What does that mean? It means that every human is born with their spirit dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God. And the only one that can bring life to our spirit is Jesus Christ. That's it. No Buddha, no Krishna, no Islam, no Hindu gods, no Brahma, no any of those. It's only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save you from the wrath of God. Only Jesus can save you from the kingdom of darkness and place you into the kingdom of light. And only Jesus paid the price for your sins. His life for your life. Now, how do I become part of God's family? We've gone through this so many times. You know this by heart. I have to believe that Jesus did it for me. I have to personalize it. 248 times the word believe is used. Believe it. The word is pistio. It means commit to. It isn't just mental assent. It's commit to. Place your trust in. Put your confidence in Jesus Christ as your sin bearer. Embedded in that word believe with that definition is repentance. It's metaneo. It's a change of mind. I'm changing my mind about who Jesus is. I believe that Jesus died for me. And what is the, what's the only thing that you do? You receive the gift. Remember John 1.12. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born again in the family of God. How many times have you heard this statement? We're all God's children. That is not true. You become a child of God the second you are born again of the Spirit. You're estranged from God. That's what the scripture says in Romans 5. Until you become born again. How does one really know that they've genuinely believed in Jesus? Folks, the evidence is this. It's a changed life. I cannot say that more plainly. It is a changed life. Conquering and overcoming Acting contrary to the world, the flesh, and the devil is evidence that you've been born again. Now, the pace of change might differ. I was on the slow track, the slow change. And it took a lot of pressure to change, but there is change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ is a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. And think about this, you know this one, biblical fruit is evidence of genuine conversion. Jesus said in Matthew 7.20, talking about the false teachers, but by extension, I think he's speaking to everybody, by their fruits you will know them. So what are we to do? We're to look at our lives. We're to examine our lives to see whether we're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see whether in your faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have been disqualified? Test yourself. That word is dokimozo, dokimos. Are you genuine or are you not? In the times of Christ, there were potters. And the potters would make the clay pot. And some of the pots had cracks in them. And what do they try to do with these cracks? They tried to put wax on these cracks and sell them as being perfectly intact. And what an astute buyer would do was hold the cracks up to the light to tell whether they had Cracks in them or not, whether they were dokimos or not, whether they were genuine or not. We hold our lives up to the light of Christ. Are we genuine? Have we just put wax on our cracks? 
in, in our lives, or we actually covered it with the blood of Christ, sealed it with the blood of Christ, perfectly clean and whole now? That's a question for each one of us. I am afraid of this, that there's many in the day of judgment that they will hear what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. Depart from me. Can you imagine that? We cast out demons in your name. We did wonderful, wonderful works in your name. We've done all these miracles and great things in your name, Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Now, you know this, but I'm just going to emphasize this one more time for you. Everybody gets 100% on this statement. You know we are all terminal, so what percent die? A hundred percent will die unless we're raptured. So we will all pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Everyone sitting there is thinking, this isn't, this isn't for me. This, this, is, this isn't going to happen to me. Oh yeah, uh-huh. All of a sudden you wake up and everything's changed. You're wrinkled. You can't hardly move. You know you're moving out. That's your sign. Get ready. You're moving out. When that day comes, and it will come for everybody, hopefully you can say like Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. I know whom I have believed. When you study Scripture, anyone who ever believed in Jesus was changed, and many died for their faith, forever faithful, conquerors overcomers, victors. The Marines have a saying, death before dishonor. May we apply that to our lives today and commit to this. I will not dishonor my Lord. I will serve the Lord until I die. What did Richard Farmer say? I will trust in the Lord until I die. Start today. Be a conqueror. Be an overcomer. Be a victor. Live differently changed, that the world may know that you have spent time with Jesus. And might I say, Jesus is coming. He is coming in judgment, and he is coming to reign as King of Kings. This is a sobering thought. And folks, I think, I know that everybody's thought this through the history of the church, but I think it is soon Look at our world. It has deteriorating like never before. And never before has there been this anti-God sentiment in this country in particular. From the time it was formed, through the Revolutionary War, through the Civil War, people had a God conscience. World War I, World War II had a God conscience. And we have lost that in this country today. America is changing. Our world is changing. Europe is changing. It's prepared for a one-world government in the Antichrist. Know that judgment is coming. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Be a victor. Be an overcomer. Be a conqueror. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've got, given us to study the wonderful Word of God. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is coming. For we who believe, that's, our, that's, that's wonderful news. For those who don't believe, that's the worst news they can ever hear. I pray today that you will affect a change in each one of people's hearts that have heard you today that don't know you as their Savior. Maybe this be the day where they take this seriously, that this is truth. Jesus will come to judge sin. 
and he will separate the true from the false. Heaven and hell are at stake. And I pray today that people who do not know you as their savior will take a pause and look at the world around them and say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to work in the hearts of people today and help us to be overcomers, conquerors, all out for you, acting contrary to our old nature and our flesh and walking in newness of life and being more and more like you. I ask you that for each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen.